Well, last week I was, or the last time I was in the pulpit, I was supposed to be in the pulpit. I was sick with strep throat or recovering from strep throat. And uh, as providence would have it, we're, we're going to look at Matthew 19, verses 1 to 12. And I felt awkward about the fact that I would come back, we would have Thanksgiving, and here we're going to talk about divorce. And then I realized that in God's providence, we're going to be talking about divorce at the holiday season, that a lot of you are going to be stressed, and it may be good that we're having this conversation even now as a preventative. And I will say that it makes me sad that this passage is so famous for being Jesus's teaching on divorce. Uh, so famous is it that if you look at your physical Bible, the, the editors of whatever edition of God's word you have has likely labeled the header as teaching about divorce. But Jesus does something far more than teach about divorce in this passage. Divorce was assumed in his day. It's his teaching on marriage that was revolutionary. So this section is not Jesus' teaching about divorce. It's really Jesus' teaching about marriage. And what he says about marriage is what then shapes his teaching on divorce. So call this Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce if you want. But don't just think of this section as Jesus' teaching on divorce, okay? It's about marriage and what marriage is and was intended to be. So let's look at this section. Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12. Now when Jesus had finished saying Sorry, when Jesus had finished these th sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. 
For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for showing us not just correct belief on one topic, but that you show us the fundamental orientation of how our hearts should be. Lord, grant that we would be faithful. Be with us now. Amen. So brothers and sisters, this, this passage is a passage that in, in previous generations uh, was, was not, uh, it was run of the mill. It was, a, of course, you don't get divorced. Uh, but, but ever since the, the explosion of commonality of divorce, um, this passage and others like it have proven to be very controversial. Um, so I want to just say at the outset, divorce is very normalized in our culture, okay? So uh, it's, it's possible, it's probable that, that there are some within the sound of my voice who have gone through divorce. And, and I just want to say at the beginning that, that God's grace is sufficient, Okay, wherever there is repentance, there is forgiveness, okay? So Christ comes to take away our sin and to cleanse us from our shame and our guilt. So there's forgiveness and there's restoration, okay? But this passage, I think, at, out of the gate, what we see right here is a stark difference between what the propensity of people is juxtaposed against what the heart of God is. And this right here is the first, I guess, litmus test of where you stand with God, okay? All throughout the book of Matthew, you saw it highlighted with neon flashing lights in the, book, in, in the Sermon on the Mount. You have Jesus juxtaposing the righteousness of the kingdom against the righteousness of the Pharisees, the righteousness that is advocated and procured by their, by their legal tradition. And the righteousness of the kingdom is not asking, what is it that I must do? What is the parameter? What is the guideline? At what point am I free of my obligations? That's the righteousness that is by the law. And, and you see, that's what the Pharisees are asking. May, is, can I divorce my wife for any reason? And then at the end, after Jesus' answer is given, the hard-heartedness of, of the disciples who, who speak this is astonishing. Do you realize that what they're saying is, my goodness, if I can't divorce my wife for any reason, it's better just to not get married. That's the righteousness 
of the law? What, under what circumstances am I obligated? And, under, and, and when and where and how and why can I end this or get out of whatever? And throughout the Gospel of Matthew, what we have seen is Jesus holds forth that the righteousness of the kingdom is not the righteousness that says, what must I do? The righteousness of the kingdom is, what does the heart of God call for that I might lovingly and joyfully do it? The Pharisees ask, under what conditions can I get divorced? And Jesus takes them back to the heart of God to unite Two beings, a man and a woman, as one. The heart of God is the matter. And, and you know that the Pharisees are not after the heart of God because they base their entire theology and practice of divorce off of one verse, Deuteronomy 24.1, in which they misapply what Moses said. Moses never commands divorce. What he commands is the regulation of it to mitigate and limit the collateral damage. And if you look at Exodus 24.1 in its context, he's not saying what you have to do to get out of your marriage. He's actually saying, well, pump, pump the brakes a little bit, Buster, because read the passage. Read it. If you let her go, you have to do this. And then if this, if this, you can't get her back. So the passage that they're basing as their justification to go and get divorced is actually in the passage and in the scriptures calling them to give a little pause, don't be hasty. And even though they focus on one verse, if they were interested in what is the heart of God on the topic of divorce, well, there's, there's a number of passages, but... Anyone ever read the book of Malachi? What does God say he hates? Divorce. And he likens someone who divorces his wife as, as someone who's living a life of violence, doing injustice and harm. So even though Moses has here He's established a parameter. Nonetheless, we see the heart of God on the topic is that he hates divorce. But yet that verse never once factored into their rationale, never once factored into their ethical decision-making simply because they were not interested in the heart of God. They wanted to know, how do I get out of a marriage that I don't find satisfying. Now this passage is also interesting because of what's going down. Why now? Why do the Pharisees just now ask Jesus about divorce? Why didn't he talk to, why didn't they ask questions about ethical responsibilities and all that way back when he did the Sermon on the Mount? Wouldn't that have been an opportune moment because he's sort of, in one sense, juxtaposing his teaching over and against the teaching of the great lawgiver Moses? And, and here they're asking him, well, there's an important reason why what they do when they do it. They, they are, it says, it says plainly in verse 3 that they're coming to test him. But understand this, they're playing politics 
remember two things. At this point, Jesus has set his face to Jerusalem. He, he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's going, he's, he's going to die for us. And the Pharisees have already decided amongst themselves that he's got to go. He's, he's a persona non grata. They want him gone. And it says that he has finally left Galilee where he's done the preponderance of his ministry and he's entered the region of Judea. Judea. So here's where you step back and you have to look at, here's the real life political things going on. Who was in charge of Judea? Herod. Just a little while before. What, what had Herod done? What's Herod famous for in the last time we've seen him? He's, he cuts off John the Baptist's head. Why was John the Baptist in prison? Because he had spoken out against Herod and Herod's wife's unlawful divorces. What do you think the Pharisees are trying to do here? Now that Jesus has come back into Herod's territory, because remember, as soon as Herod arrested John the Baptist, Jesus leaves. He leaves Judea. And he gets out of Dodge and he goes to Galilee where he does his ministry. But now he's back in Herod's jurisdiction. And the first thing they ask, they don't talk to him about, are you the Messiah? They, they're not going to try out right out of the gate to get him on uh, against Rome. No, they, they, they want a, the quick and easy route. They got rid of John. What about divorce? The same issue that got John. So understand, this in no way is an honest, sincere question on their part. Okay? They are trying to get Jesus. They're trying to get Jesus in trouble with the law. Because nothing Jesus says is... is, is heretical to their mind. There were two schools of thought in rabbinical Judaism. Uh, There was the the Shimei school of thought, which which was more like what Jesus says. Jesus ramps it up a little bit, but, but their understanding was that you could divorce, but only for serious offenses. Serious offenses. And the Hillel school of thought was the one that had practically won the day, and it was, it was the normative accepted practice in the society. But that was, you could divorce for any little thing. But what, what Jesus says, while it's a ramping up of the Shimei school, nonetheless, it, it's, not, it's not scandalous to them like, like saying, I am. No, they want to get him in trouble with the law. And Jesus isn't afraid because Jesus has to set right not only their practice, but the very orientation of their heart. The problem fundamentally with their question, the problem with the practice of their day, how they had twisted scripture to avoid looking at the heart of God, to instead focus on on a commandment that was meant to regulate and, and, and mitigate collateral damage, that they were looking for it for license, stemmed from a misunderstanding and misappreciation for what marriage was to begin with. And that, I believe, is a problem that we have in common with them. 
We don't understand and appreciate marriage the way we ought. Sadly, in 1969, then governor of California, Ronald Reagan, signed into law the nation's first no-fault divorce law. Before then, none of us is old enough to remember a time, most, most of But once upon a time, to get divorced, you had to prove that your spouse had wronged you. Not just irreconcilable differences. He's not meeting my needs. She's not making me happy. And the consequence of that act led to a litany of states in rapid succession passing similar no-fault divorce laws to the point that that by the early 90s, I think all 50 states had no-fault divorce laws in place. And so we have all come of age in a no-fault divorce world that has radically shaped our understanding of marriage to the point, coupled with other philosophical movements that have taken place, marriage is now in the minority For eternity past, most adults were married in every society. Even in the Soviet Union where where, where no-fault divorce was first tried out as a a social experiment to do away with the family and the household unit as as the cultural shaping institution, even there most were married. But here in the West, for the first time in human history, most adults are not married. They shack up. And that's what Jesus' statement at the end is so astonishing. When, when, when they object, it's better to not get married if I can't just divorce her for any reason. His, his, his response is akin to, maybe it is for you if you're going to be like that. But understand that the purpose of singlehood, according to Jesus here, so normalized is marriage. So, so, so generally normal is God's expectation for marriage that to not be married is seen as something, as a gift of God for the purpose of the kingdom. Not just so I can live my best life. Not just so I can sleep around with whoever I want. Not just... Most historically have been married because of what Jesus teaches here. But for the first time, we're not. And when people do marry, They're taking all these precautions to do what the Pharisees have done. They they sign prenups right out of the gate. They keep their finances and and all their other things separate to try to mitigate. And it shows they don't understand the nature and the purpose of God. I want you to understand this. Jesus sets a high bar for marriage. Christian marriage is not Mormon marriage. We got to be careful when, when we talk about marriage, and I'm going to say some things about marriage that are really high, uh, that are really important, but we're not Roman Catholics. Marriage is not a sacrament. Okay? Nor are we Mormons. Mormons have their celestial marriage, and they believe that you're going to be married in, in, in heaven or whatever, and that's not the case. I have to break it to you. I don't, 
It doesn't matter how much you may want to be married to your spouse forever. At the resurrection, you will not be married. Okay? But marriage in this life is very important. Christians are obligated to honor marriage. Hebrews 13.4 tells us this. Let marriage be held in honor among all. It is our duty as Christians to honor marriage. So let us. And Jesus helps us understand why we should honor marriage. He speaks of the creational purpose of marriage. And, and quite frankly, in verses three, 4 through 6, when Jesus speaks of the rationale and basis and importance of marriage, he, he actually does conflict a modern misbelief that Jesus never speaks to or touches on the issue of same-sex marriage. Wrong. Marriage is by creation, male and female together. By God's creation, intent, design. No other coupling of humans is a marriage. Only male and female is marriage. Why? Because of the one flesh nature of it and the procreative purpose behind it. And what is astonishing is that he says here that it is God who makes them one. What God has joined together. God has joined together. Not the state. Not the minister. But God. God joins them together and therefore man should not seek to separate. As if we are opposing or seeking to thwart the purposes of God. And and God provides rationale in Malachi 2.15 of why he makes them put together. In Malachi 2.15, we're told that God puts a measure of his spirit in our unions. Malachi 2.15. And it's for a purpose. And it's a procreative purpose. So understand this about your marriage. To hold it in honor, you must first understand that God put you together with your spouse. Don't ever say to me, I married the wrong person. No, you didn't. God put you together. God is your matchmaker. Wow. And that's not just a romantic sentiment. That, that's the gritty reality that God put you together. And he's present in your marriage. He's put a measure of his spirit in your marriage. God is not only the matchmaker, but he's the bonding agent. He's the bonding agent in your marriage. So, well, Ben, if God is the matchmaker, and if God is the bonding agent, then why is marriage so hard? It's so hard because I'm so hard. While marriage is not a sacrament, it's not. 
It's not a means of grace. Uh, but nonetheless, in, in this arena of life, marriage provides a, a fantastic matrix for sanctification to be worked out. And, and the, the biblical metaphors of what God does to us to sanctify us are kind of violent and painful. It's the, it's the metaphor of melting down metal to burn away impurities. It's the metaphor of, of chiseling away stone. It's the metaphor of, of sawing off and, and planing off bits of wood. Okay, it's not simply painting a picture. He's reshaping you. Now, every, every year, my family and I, well, just about every year, we like to go to, Mount, to, to, to South Dakota, to the Black Hills. I love it. I love it at this time of year. Um, and many times we go to Mount Rushmore. And one of the wonderful things about going to Mount Rushmore in November is oftentimes we're the only customer there. That's great. And Mount Rushmore looks, looks I mean, it's, it's cool. But did you know that back before they started, it was just a, it was just a mountain? And, and before they applied the first jackhammer to it, they had to dynamite off 450,000 tons of granite. 450,000 tons of granite. That's the weight of four Nimitz-class aircraft carriers. Just, just to get started. Now, that's rock. I'm a spiritually dead rebel sinner at heart. What work must God do in my life to make me holy? He declares me holy in justification. But then sanctification is him saying, all right, I said it. Now we're going to make it so. And you want to know why marriage is hard? It's because two stubborn, rebellious sinners are joined together by God to walk through life together. And there's going to be friction, isn't there? There's going to be the butting of heads. And it's akin to the dynamiting off of some of that 450,000 tons of granite. But if you want to know why marriage is hard, it's because you and I were hard. But God is there. And he's working. So what that means, because he's working, is I can look at my wife. And she can look at me, and you can look at your spouse and say, you know what, this, this person isn't the same person that they were, but they're not the same person that they're going to be. Because God is at work. Therefore, what God has joined together and what God has established as a primary matrix of his sanctifying activity and his sanctifying work in our lives let not man separate. And they object. They want to know under what circumstance. Then why did Moses say this? 
And Moses was placed in the awkward position of being the the mediator of a national covenant where the the fact of the matter is, is, is in creation God set forth a beautiful thing, marriage. But sin entered the world and sin wrecks everything. And in a sinful world with unconverted people, there's, there's collateral damage to every sinful act. There's always second and third order effects to sin. Sin is never a victimless crime. And so Moses, in dealing with a nation of hard-hearted sinners, he had to prescribe some sort of thing to mitigate the consequences. So a man could not just kick his wife out of the house and and, and then she's destitute and then she goes to get remarried and then if he's particularly spiteful, he couldn't say, I didn't really divorce her. I just told her to, to get out and I meant for a while and now she's committing adultery so I want her stoned. Moses instituted a law to protect and limit. But it wasn't what God intended and wanted. What he wanted was people whose hearts were burning with a zeal for how do I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and my neighbor as myself and you have given me the wife of my youth and you've called me to delight in her and to enjoy her forever. You've, you've, you've asked for blessing God to be upon my marriage and you've told me that you've put a, a measure of your spirit in my union. So what that means, Lord, is you don't want me to divorce my wife. You want me to love her through thick and thin That's what we're called to do. Because your marriage is precious. So when you look at your spouse and you're just feeling sick of them, you remember that God put you together, that God is at work, and that Jesus calls you to fidelity to that. And that to just break the covenant and cast the other aside is akin to committing adultery. Do not be like the Pharisees. Do not be like the misguided disciples who who are so self-interested that the news that they can't divorce for any reason at all is is, is marriage isn't even worth it then. What? What? It misses the picture of what God's doing, of what God's calling us to. So, love the Lord by loving your spouse. See that divorce is always a tragedy. It's never commanded in Scripture. Did you know that? It's never commanded. It's sometimes permissible, but it's never commanded. Think about that. It reflects, it reflects the world's priorities and values when you find yourself, when I find myself saying, oh, it's a good thing they got divorced. It's never a good thing. Sometimes it's a necessary thing, but it's not a good thing because it always reflects the sin on the part of at least one of them. Someone's either a covenant breaker and they've, and they've cheated, or they've abused, or they've neglected. Or, or they're a covenant breaker by virtue of just being a selfish, self-absorbed person. 
Sin is never to be celebrated. Divorce should never be celebrated, even though sometimes it is permissible, as Jesus says here. Our hearts should be hearts that cherish and value and prioritize our marriage. So be like Billy Graham. Be like Mike Pence. Do you remember, I I was astonished back in the early part of, uh, in 2016 after President Trump was inaugurated, some of you may remember the firestorm that erupted when Mike Pence, the Pence rule. Do you remember that? That that Mike Pence uh, won't meet alone with women and, and he won't go to functions uh, at, at which alcohol is served if his, if his wife isn't present. And that's the same rule basically that Billy Graham lived by for his, his whole ministry, that he didn't meet alone with other women because he, he cherished his marriage and he underst- they both understand that the human heart is treacherous. And of course, that met with a firestorm of criticism by secularists and even some within the Christian community, uh, more aligned with the secularists, in my opinion, criticize that. But, but they understand and value their marriage. So valuing your marriage is not simply an intellectual, theoretical thing. Place measures in your life to safeguard it. Put factors in place that help you to communicate to the other, but also to communicate to the world, even as you remind yourself that my marriage is precious. God has made us one. Therefore, let not man separate. Do not be found guilty of resisting the purposes and activity of God. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for what your word teaches us about your role and activity in not just marriage theoretically or the marriage of Adam and Eve, but in our marriage. Thank you for being active. Grant that we would be faithful to honor your purposes, your institutions, that we might see marriage as, a, as the matrix in which your relationship to your people is fleshed out and pictured to the world. And where we are chiseled and refined to be made more like Jesus. Grant that we would ask, what can we do to show your heart to the world rather than what do I have to do to pursue my interests. Be with us. For Christ's sake we pray it. Amen.